Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and an instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Heavenly Father, you see our hearts. You see who we are, where we're at in life, where we are in relationship to you. And we ask, God, that your word, where there is power, the word that your spirit uses, would give us instruction and correction where it is needed. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the beliefs of evangelical Christianity is the inspiration and unity of the scriptures. Inspiration meaning that they were brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit, given by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I say unity meaning that all of the scriptures are a unified whole, that they work together with one another. And so there are 66 books of the Bible written by about 40 human authors to people who lived in various places, in various times, all parts of the world. It was written over the course of about 1,500 years. And yet, there is a unity in all of these books as they work together. A common story, consistent themes that run through them all. Why? Because there is a single author who inspired the whole thing. And so you would expect if there was a single author, whose name is God, who writes one book with all of these various authors being inspired by him, that there would be consistent patterns throughout, that it would be a unified whole, and that is exactly what we have in the Bible. And as a person grows in his or her maturity as a disciple, one of the things that you would like to see is a grasp in the unity that the Bible has. It's storyline. To know that it's not just a collection of a bunch of stories but with those stories, Old and New Testaments together, they all work for a common purpose. They work together to point us to Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament, you know, sometimes it seems a little bit dusty to us. 
Sometimes it seems a little bit detached, does it not? And maybe you are tempted from time to time to lay the Old Testament aside and not look at that and only read the New Testament. The Old Testament, though, is not just a bunch of obsolete books that a Christian under a new covenant leaves behind. It is the enduring Word of God that tells us better how to see Jesus Christ. It grows us in our knowledge of Him. And not only does it tell us about Jesus and who He is, it also tells us about ourselves. The Old Testament teaches me what my heart is like. And so there are examples to imitate there in the Old Testament, and there are examples that are there to warn us. And so this, the writer of this letter that we call Hebrews, he is a master, a master at understanding the Old Testament. And his writing here in this book reflects that. The church that he is writing to here, these people, we don't know exactly where they lived. We don't know exactly who they were. But what we do know about them by the way that he writes is that these people were tempted to go back to former ways. They must have been Jews under the Old Covenant at some point. They knew their Old Testament, and that's why he instructs them the way that he does. He constantly uses the Old Testament to teach them. And so persecution has come somewhere in first century Christianity. It's getting hard to live as a Christian. People are knocking at their doors. People are dragging some of these people away. We see in chapter 10 that some of these folks have been dragged off to prison. It's getting hard to live as a Christian. And so they, I think, naturally would think to themselves, well, things were okay when I lived as a Jew. Nobody ever took us to prison. Nobody ever threatened our lives when we lived as Jewish people under the Old Covenant. Maybe... I should just go back to living like that. God was pleased with that back then, was he not? And this writer is teaching them the old covenant has been done away with. It has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, and there is nothing to go back to. You can only move forward. You try to go backward, and it means that you are falling away from the faith. So he is teaching them here through the Old Testament how those things are. And he's using examples in the Old Testament to teach them about a people who once fell away. So we're at one of these places right now in, in Hebrews chapter 6 that is a place of warning, telling them to be careful, to watch out. They're giving indication that there are things wrong inside of their hearts they need to watch where they're at because they are in danger. And we started this section last week. It starts in chapter 5, verse 11, where he's telling them about a kind of immaturity that he can see in these people. He says that they have become dull of hearing, that they're not moving forward. In fact, he says they have gone backward. And this writer is going to tell them about a people who long ago lived and did the very same thing that it seems that they are doing, and those people fell away and did not enter into the rest of God. And that is Israel in the wilderness. And he's already used them as an example of an unbelieving people who were not allowed to enter previous in this letter. But their unbelief caused them to fall before they got to the promised land. And in this section of Scripture, he warns this church that they need to be told they need to be told, again, not to follow in the steps of those people who had gone before them, people who had experienced the amazing power of God 
and yet somehow failed to believe and enter into the goodness that God had prepared for them. And so knowing the Old Testament like he does, he, and the big picture of the Bible, it helps him to see what is taking place. The events of the wilderness generation inform these warnings that he's given to this current generation. Do you remember the story of Israel? And have you ever thought to yourself, how is it that these people experienced the things that they did, the things that they saw, and yet they still did not believe? And I think the amazing part of that, or the amazing effect of that, is why he speaks as he does. Because he is saying to this current people out here, quite honestly, God has done things that their eyes saw that your eyes will never see. And yet they did not believe somehow or another in their hearts. What did they see? They saw plagues, did they not? They saw plagues there in Egypt. Plagues that impacted the Egyptian people, but yet did not touch them. God demonstrating that he was taking care of his people and shielding them from judgment. And then when it was time to leave, they packed up all their things. God had told them, not only will they allow you to leave, they will essentially pay you to leave. And that's exactly what happens. All the Egyptian people show up with all their gold and their jewelry and they're handing it to them. Please leave our land. So they do. And then they get to the Red Sea. And their backs are against the wall and they find out that Pharaoh has changed his mind and he is going to come after them. And what did they see then? God showed up in great power, did he not? He split the Red Sea in half. They walked through on dry ground. And then when the Egyptians came after them, the waters closed up over top of them and they all perished. But Israel lived. And as soon as they got to the other side, you'd think at this point they know that God is going to take care of them. He has shown that he loves them. He's going to deliver them from powers that are far greater than they are. But they don't. They start to complain that they don't have the food that they want. They start to complain that they'd like to go back to Egypt and have those pots of meat that they had. Oh, the cucumbers, you know. And none of that is out here in the wilderness. So what does God do? He sends bread from heaven to feed them every day. So again, you'd think the people would have trusted in the Lord and known he's going to bring us into the promised land. This God loves us. He's going to take care of us. They get thirsty, complain. We don't have anything to drink out here in the wilderness. God feeds them or gives them water from a rock. Again, power. He speaks to them from on top of the mountain. His voice comes out to them, fire and thunder from Mount Sinai. He gives them instruction. They are afraid, think that he's going to kill them. Again and again and again, God demonstrates that they are his people and that he cares for them. He's going to protect them. He's going to lead them home. He warns them that there are people that are larger than they are, more powerful than they are, and yet they do not need to be afraid. He brings them all the way to the edge of the promised land. And they send in 12, we call them spies. They're scouts. 
He says, go in and look over the land and see what's there and see that everything that I said to you is true. It's as good as I said. Maybe I mentioned this before, but it says they, they brought back a grapevine that was so large that they had to have two men carry it on a pole. Do you grow grapes at your house? We got a lot of grapes down there in the southern area when you're coming up from Erie, do we not? I've never seen anything like that. God is showing the land that I have for you is wonderful. I'm going to take care of you. It flows with milk and honey. It's beautiful. He says that he waters and cares for it himself. It's his garden. And what happens? Ten of the twelve of those spies come back and they give a bad report. They give a bad report. They say the people there in the land are too great for us. They're too tall. They're too mighty. If we go in there, we're like grasshoppers to them and they are going to kill us. And it is at this point... After all of this time in the wilderness, all these deliverances, all of this demonstration of the love of God, he says, I've had enough. These people, they are a stiff-necked people, and they will not have me as their God. Therefore, his judgment fell upon them, and they did not enter his rest. And so when we get to this portion of Scripture right here, this author who knows his Old Testament. He knows that it is possible for there to be a people. It's possible for there to be a people that has seen all of these wonderful things who are underneath, yes, they were underneath a different covenant. They lived in a different time, under different promises. But yet these people saw the amazing power of God in a way that you and I never will. And yet they did not believe. And so when these people right here who are in front of him, these people that he knows, he has observed them, he knows that they too have seen the power of God in the Christian community. Israel out there in the wilderness was a kind of community, was a kind of church, a gathering of God's people. But here, he sees, you are a community of God's people, and I'm starting to see some of the problems that the Old Testament tells us about this former people. And he wants them to receive a warning. He wants them to receive a warning and demonstrate that they are the people of God. The people of God will persevere to the end. And Israel there in the wilderness did not persevere to the end. So he's prodding them, pushing them, imploring them, and telling them, see, there's something there in God's word that says it is possible for you to have been in the community of faith and yet be an unbeliever. He sees it in the Old Testament and he tells these people that it is still possible here under the new covenant. That's why he's telling them that the events of the wilderness generation They are informing his understanding of the warnings that he's given here for this current generation. This isn't the first time that he's done that either. If we look back at Hebrews chapter 4, listen to what he says. So this does not just come out of nowhere. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, 
The promise of his rest still stands for us. We can enter into it. He says, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. He's talking about Israel. Good news came to them. Deliverance has come to you through the power of your God, the grace of your God. Enter into his rest. Good news. He says, good news came to us too through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now, as they're making their way along out there in the wilderness during that time, how obvious do you think it would be that who were believers and who were not? It probably would have been very difficult to tell. They're all experiencing the blessings. They're all walking behind the cloud of the Lord or the burning flame of the Lord as he led them through the wilderness. But the distinguishing mark between some and others was faith. So the message, he says, that these people heard did not benefit them because they did not have faith that joined them with those who listened. He says something similar again just a few verses later, Hebrews 4.11. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's warning them. They fell by their disobedience. Do not follow after their example. He's making it clear that the Old Testament teaching about Israel is meant to serve as a warning to us. That's what he says there in verses 4 and 5. Listen to the language that he uses here. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the power of the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come. I do think, as he says these words, some of what took place there with Israel is in the back of his mind. What powers of the age to come did they see? Miracles. Miraculous things. The power of the age to come had entered into their experience and they saw it with their own eyes. They tasted the heavenly gift. They ate bread from heaven. It fell from heaven every day. It was a reminder each and every day that God will provide for us. He feeds us. They're wanting a garden out there in the desert to till up and grow forth crops. So God took care of them. Every day. And yet, somehow, they did not believe. It's pretty incredible. And so with us, here in, whether it's the first century or the 21st century, he is saying that the Christian community can experience things together. That inside that community, that gather together for worship, it is possible for there to be a mixture between believers and unbelievers. Everybody has seen wonderful things. We've heard testimonies of God's grace right back here in this baptismal. We heard a couple of weeks ago after the blizzard, people came down to the front and shared how God had taken care of them. We believe that God provides for his people. We gather together on Sunday nights and we pray together, do we not? We pray, and God, surprisingly, right, he answers prayer. He shows up in life in powerful ways. And the community of faith gets to hear about that and rejoice together. 
We gather on the first Sunday of every month for the Lord's Supper, and we taste, in a sense, the heavenly gift. Now, we taste it by faith, do we not? That doesn't require eating something. But the Lord's Supper is a reminder with our physical taste that there is a Savior whose name is Jesus who gave his body and his blood for us. We receive in the Christian community gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's not just something we talk about. The Spirit genuinely gifts us supernaturally. I'm not talking about your natural gifts. Supernaturally, the Holy Spirit empowers His people to love one another and serve one another in particular ways. We've got a new want-to inside of us that comes from outside of ourselves. Again, powers of the age to come inside of me and inside of you. And we all gather together on Sunday mornings and we experience something of that. The gospel is proclaimed each and every week to every man, woman, and child in this place that there is a Savior who gave his life 2,000 years ago. We have the good word. And yet, it is possible for somebody to be here for 20, 30, 40 years, it's possible to be in the community of faith and receive the blessings in a sense and yet not believe. That's what he's saying here in the example of Israel. All the things they saw, man, how could you not believe? And yet the word tells us they didn't. So he is telling us it is possible. And Jesus even taught about the wheat and the tares. That they grow up together in the garden. And you don't uproot the tares because it might rip out the wheat. But God knows who is his. And he'll bring in the harvest there at the end. It's the warning that this first century church needed, brothers and sisters. You and I also need today. We see wonderful things in the Christian community. And it's possible, is it not? I'm going to say there are people in this room who have had answered prayer that in the moment you had no doubt that God had intervened in your life. And the temptation is a few days later just to say, well, that was a coincidence. To think... Ah, you know, things like that happen all the time. But in that moment, you just, you just knew. So our hearts are fickle. The weak, they succumb to temptation. They are inclined toward unbelief. So we need a good warning here to prod us forward to live for Jesus Christ. He says something in Hebrews chapter 3, similar. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. He's talking to a congregation just like this. He's saying, take care. It's possible that inside of you is an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called the day. That's what we need in this congregation. Exhortation. Pushing each other forward. Not letting one another fall and stumble along the way. Not leaving anybody behind. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called the day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
It's there. Sin is always right there in your next step, waiting to trip you up and make you fall. That's why we need one another. And we've got brothers and sisters who have detached from our congregation over the last few years. And it's quite possible that they have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Traps were in the way. And they stepped in them. And they're no longer are receiving the exhortation of the Christian community to go forward. But they've separated. He says he wants us to hold our original confidence firm to the end. To the end, all the way. You've watched the Olympics. You know that when somebody goes out there to run a race, that you don't get a crown by being ahead halfway through the race. You've got to make it all the way. If the Buffalo Bills get to the Super Bowl this year, and I know you all are pumped and ready for it, but if they get there, they will not get a trophy for leading at halftime. If that were the case, there would be two trophies already in Orchard Park because they led at halftime twice. It takes a full game. Everybody in this room knows someone who at some point has confessed to be a Christian. But somewhere along the way, that person began to falter. They began to disappear from public worship. They gave in to continual sin. They grew cold to the Word of God. They became distant in prayer. And that's where that person remains to this day. And yet, there will be somebody who will still call this person a Christian, though he has given no evidence of it in years. He once walked an aisle. He once professed faith in a baptismal. But if he does not repent, he will be a modern illustration of those people who spent time in the wilderness and were buried there in unbelief short of the promised land. And so if you know anything about this passage, you understand that it is controversial in debates on whether a person can lose their salvation or not. So the question is always kind of out there. Can a person be saved at some point and then lose their salvation? Now let me ask another question that I think gets to the point a little more clearly with what the writer is talking about here. The question would be, can someone be a true Christian and fail to persevere to the end? Well, the answer to that is no. Because the Scriptures teach us no. The Scriptures teach us that saving faith will persevere all the way to the end. They do not, you don't get there halfway. Saving faith carries you all the way because God will carry you all the way. God knows who belongs to Him. But down here from our vantage point, the way that we see things, we don't see things the way that God does from up above. We only know what's right here in front of us. And if a person begins to live like a hellion, we do not offer that person comfort with words like, well, you're a Christian. You'll be okay. That is not what the biblical author says here. I think that it is perfectly right 
perfectly right. When you know someone who starts to sleep around, starts to get drunk, starts to live like the world with no repentance. I'm just picking those two out. You just pick any sin you want. Starts to live in sin and love their sin with no repentance at all, no looking to Jesus for forgiveness, with just a I'm okay attitude. I think it's okay for you to lovingly and truthfully say to that person, if you do not repent, you will go to hell. Because in that moment, that person does not need to hear the quip, once saved, always saved. They don't need to hear that. They don't need to receive any comfort in that moment. They need a good warning. And that is exactly what this author is giving these people here. The warning or the instruction that they need in this particular moment. They need to be told, prove, demonstrate by your repentance that you are a child of God. That's what they need. They need to be told, do you not know that the unrighteous will not enter the kingdom of God? So if you call yourself a believer, you'll show it. You will. You'll respond to the good word. You'll respond to the truth that there is a Savior for sinners and that you are a sinner. And Jesus Christ loves you and gave his life for sinners. Will you trust in him? And will you turn to him and be cleansed? That's what they need to hear. So brothers and sisters, do you know of someone that you love? Someone that you love that's in a situation like this. And is anyone talking to this person about the danger that they are in? Does anybody love that person enough to say hard things like this, to give them a warning? Or are you just hoping that the confession that she made so long ago when she walked that aisle will hold up in the end, though she gives no evidence for it at all? But because you're the one that's sitting here this morning listening to the Word, I'd like to make it just a bit more personal. We need to understand that everyone here needs this warning. Every person needs this warning. Everybody here needs to be reminded that there, are, there was a people who saw the things that they saw there in the Old Testament, and yet they fell in the wilderness. So maybe you're here this morning and you are teetering on the edge. You're on the edge. You've been dipping your toes in the waters. You've been drifting from faith in Christ. You've been drifting from the fellowship with the people of God. You need to hear the word that is here so that you will teeter back on the right side of things. Come to the Lord Jesus and know that he is smiling upon you and ready to give favor. Repent. Trust in his promises. Maybe you're solid right now. Walking with the Lord, you're disciplined and you're obedient to the faith. 
But there may come a day very soon when temptation comes, suffering comes, the pressures of the world come, like it is with these people. In the world that we live in right now, can you see how that might come? Where people aren't inclined to be kind to you because you follow Jesus? Can you see that? Like certainly not here in New York State, right? But that is the case. Do you not think that pressure will come more and more in the days to come for you to affirm the things that the world loves out there? All the craziness is taking place out there. There will come a day when we are no longer shielded from it and we will be tempted in that moment to affirm what they affirm so that we don't receive persecution. Maybe that's already happening with you. Maybe you're really guarded with your social media posts, right? I don't want to make it look at all like I'm that kind of Christian. One of these days it will become more clear who you stand with. Do you stand with Jesus Christ and his truth? Or do you stand with the world? So maybe you're really solid right now, but in that day, the pressure will be turned up a bit, will it not? And maybe right now you're here and you're outside the fold of God. Maybe you sort of identify yourself as a Christian and here you are listening and you just simply need to be told that not all people who call themselves Christians and are in the fold in the moment as it appears have true saving faith. So maybe you've been a Christian in name only out there, but there has been no fruit of it. Come to Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus Christ. The door is open. He comes to the door, he says, to all who knock. Will you come? So maybe you're here this morning, and that's what you needed to hear. It's not good enough to simply call yourself a Christian. You need to be one by having faith in Jesus Christ and his shed blood for your sins. That's what you need to hear. And he illustrates his point here with a picture of land that has received over time an abundance of rain. What would you expect if in the springtime rain comes on a field, it's warm outside, you expect some green grass or something green to grow up, do you not? That would show that that field is healthy and producing what it is supposed to. But what if, after all of that takes place, that field demonstrates thorns and thistles and brown and ugly? You think something's wrong with that field. Well, that's his point here. He's imploring this people to produce a crop of righteousness. He says to them, you've received a lot of rain, you've received a lot of sunshine, and yet for some reason you are not producing the fruit of the Lord. I'll close with an illustration that I hope will be helpful. We've got some chickens at our house. It is possible to have chickens in the city, you know. A year or so ago, one of my daughters wanted chickens, and so we built a coop. Got those birds back there. After six months, a chicken starts to lay eggs, and they did. Started getting eggs. And right now, it's a pretty good time to get eggs, is it not? Eggs are like $5 a dozen. So bring on the eggs. 
We're out there collecting more than we could, we could even really keep up with for a while. But somewhere along in the fall, and I think I have an idea of what may have started it, but somewhere along in the fall, those birds stopped laying eggs. They just kind of stopped. And I started thinking to myself, you know, what good is a chicken that doesn't lay eggs? Like, it's just another animal that we got to go out there and feed, buy things for, just to keep it alive, but it's supposed to be a producing animal. I understand that I don't expect anything out of a dog, right? But they don't produce anything except they're supposed to produce some joy, some happiness, a wagging tail, and all that. But a chicken, I mean, they're producing eggs. All that stuff that we had given to them, the coop, soft and fluffy things on the inside for them to lay around on, things to perch on, they scratch around in, but they don't lay any eggs. So I know that something is not right with those chickens. They may as well become shish kebabs or chicken wings to give us a good meal or two. I don't know if Ireland would like that or not. Maybe at this point I didn't care. I don't know. <laughs> and I guess in some ways I wish that I could just go in there and just give the chickens a good warning and let them know, like, eggs in two weeks or it's coming to an end. Lay eggs or you're going to be on the grill. That is what we have going on here. It's pretty clear in these people that something is wrong. And he's starting to wonder, are you really the people of God? Like I could wonder, are you really a chicken? But what he goes on to do in the, in the, in the verses that follow, he says to them, I have seen the good things that you have done in the past. And I have hope for you because of what I have seen. I could say the same thing about those chickens. I know that they can lay eggs. I know that they're real chickens. I've seen it with my own eyes. Start laying eggs again. That's what he's encouraging these people to do. I've seen it. If you want to read what he says that they have done in the past, it's in chapter 10. It's beautiful. He says that they willingly receive the plundering of their property because they knew that they had a better hope laid up for them in heaven. But they were willing to lose their possessions here on earth because they had a heavenly hope. It's all right, you take my stuff because my real stuff is laid up there with Jesus. He says, I, I know that you serve those people in prison. The prison system back then wasn't like the one we've got now. They weren't providing good food to people. They weren't taking care of the people who were in there. Somebody had to come and do that. And so when these Christians showed up to serve these Christians in jail who were thrown there because of their faith in Jesus, they were demonstrating, I'm one with you. I'm just like you. I deserve to be in jail with you according to their rules. But they didn't care. They did it anyway. So they had already produced eggs in a sense. And he had seen it. I know it's possible. I know what's in you. Begin again. Repent. Look to Christ and produce fruit that demonstrates you are that field that received rain and sunshine. 
So brothers and sisters, for us, I don't know where you're at necessarily in your faith. I know where some of you are. But obviously, we do not know the heart like the Lord does. I don't know your heart. But because this is where we're at in God's Word, I'm going to assume there are people here who need this warning. Repent of your sin. Do not be deceived by it. Follow the Lord in faith. Continue on. You do not get the crown for making it halfway. Keep going all the way to the end, to the river Jordan. Walk through by faith. That last enemy of death has been conquered by Jesus. You don't have to be afraid then either. And find your home, your rest with God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We need this. We delight in the scriptures that affirm us and comfort us with who we are in Christ and the grace that we receive, the goodness of God. We love all those things and we need them. But we also need good, solid warnings that tell us what our hearts are like. They are fickle and prone to wander. And I hope God, as the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I hope there are people in this room who feel their proneness to wander and look to the truth of your word and that it would correct them and lead them back on the path of your goodness. I pray that every person in this room, every person in this room would make it to their final rest in heaven with the Lord. Be what we need in this moment, Lord. Our hope, the one who gives us repentance, the one who tells us we are washed in the blood of Jesus. Look in every heart and have your way in the people in this room. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul. Would y'all mind coming up here and, and leading us in a song? I know I didn't, I didn't ask them to do this, but and I don't care which one. At this time, when we close here in song, if you need to just pray and spend a moment in reflection, if you want to come to the front and kneel on the steps, if you need to repent of your sin, this can be a moment to do that. If you just want to stay there in your seat and do that, it's perfectly fine. If you need to trust in Jesus Christ, this is a moment where you can do that as well. Come and tell me after the service that that is what your desire is, is to follow the Lord by faith. And as they're getting ready here, I, just, I have one final thing to say about this passage. Last night when I was wrapping up my thoughts on these verses, a word came to my mind, and it's the word byword. Do y'all know what a byword is? I know it's not something we use very often, just like the word abide earlier. In the, in the, a byword. It means an example of what not to do. So when a person becomes a byword, they're the example that somebody uses like, oh, remember such and such. So right here in this passage, Israel is a byword of a, of a people who fell. 
a people who uh, are being held up to a kind of ridicule in a way to say, don't be like those people. And my thought was is that for every person in this room, you've got somebody in your mind that you remember that used to call themselves a Christian, used to walk with Jesus, at least it looked that way, and then times got hard and they walked away. That person in your mind has become a byword. And my hope was, as I thought on that, that nobody in this room, nobody in our congregation, whether they're here or not here today, will ever become a byword in the minds of someone else. You remember such and such? He used to walk with the Lord. He was there for 15 years, and we don't know what happened to him. May God not allow any person in this room to be a byword, but an encouragement Because what he says here at the very end, he says, so that you may not be sluggish, a byword, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. May every person here in this room be somebody to be imitated. Because all the way to the end, you walked by faith, and people know where you are, that you are with the Lord. Let's sing together.